Have you ever thought about giving up on your faith? And if you have, were you giving up on your faith or were you giving up on a pastor, on a particular congregation, on a synod or denomination, or were you giving up on God? With the overwhelming news stories that just kept piling on this past week, I know quite a few folks who are asking a very important question. If the church, and by the way, at this point, when we say church, we're talking about denominations and synods. We're talking about local congregations. We're talking about individual Christians. In other words, everything that we could define as church. If they can't do anything about all of these tragedies, then what good are they? Personally, the reason I cannot give up on the church or my faith because when I am suffering, and it doesn't matter, by the way, whether it's my personal suffering, something I'm suffering through, or whether I am suffering alongside a brother or sister in Christ who's going through something. You see, when I look at the cross, I see somebody hanging there who does more than just say, I'll pray for you. This past week, the bloody mess in Afghanistan, the wildfires, earthquakes, floods, and drought, as well as the constant sirens coming and going from Palimomi took their toll. Over a dozen people told me, I just couldn't watch or listen anymore. And I knew what they meant. They'd gotten trapped in a cycle of bad news long enough that it hurt all the way down to their soul. Hurt and pain and suffering are one thing. But what really shook them, and by the way, what shook some of us as well, was the feeling that none of us could actually do anything about it, that we were helpless. As a pastor, much of what I do leaves nothing behind to prove that I've actually done anything, which is why pastors often resort to saying things like, well, you know what? I have this many people in church on Sunday, or offerings were this much, or we had this many baptisms. It's a way to somehow measure the ministry even if we have no idea whether any of those things had any eternal value. It's one of the reasons I like work days. See, when I paint something, fix something, or clean something, I get to point to it and say, yeah, look at that. It's fixed. It's painted. It's cleaned. But what can we do about the refugees who are now on American soil with no job, no money, no family? and those, especially the Christian missionaries and others left behind in Afghanistan? What about the air and ground crews that had to see with their eyes and feel with their heart instead of what we simply experienced on the screen? What can we do about all the people who have lost everything in the wildfires and the fire crews that have been working nonstop for weeks? What about all the people whose faces and names we never, may never see or know, but we know are lost and hurting and don't know where to turn? If you pull up the Pew Forum or any of the other religious research companies, they list the primary reasons that people leave churches. The church teaches something they don't agree with. The church, or someone in the church, usually hurt them. They didn't feel welcome. They no longer believe. They may no longer believe what that church teaches. They may no longer believe what the Bible teaches. They may no longer believe what that pastor, but they no longer believe. Sometimes they'll even say they no longer believe in God. I won't argue with any of those reasons, but I actually think that there's a lot more to it. Moral failure and possibly dark darkness, doubt, pain, loss, all sound like fitting reasons to give up on a church. But I think, I think more often, it's actually more about giving up on yourself. In last week's gospel, Jesus said, unless you feast on me, you don't have any life in you. 
Some of the disciples responded, you know, this teaching is hard. Who can accept it? All right, here's your Greek lesson for the day. The word for teaching is logos, literally word. Now go back to Christmas Eve in the gospel lesson. St. John said, the, you fill in the blank, was made flesh and dwells among us. Do you remember that word, the word that John used? Yeah, the word was made flesh. And, and by the way, that word is logos. Do you see the connection? God's word becomes flesh and dwells among us. And some of the disciples said, this word is hard. Who can accept it? And if you remember last week, I told you that most Greek and Hebrew verbs, they are, well, they have a gender. They're either masculine or feminine. In this case, autou, at the end of the sentence, is masculine. And so the actual translation would be, this word is difficult. Who can accept him? John 6 is full of unflattering words and rejection of Jesus. The only good news came when Jesus asked the twelve and Peter decided he would speak for everybody when he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Or as our version said, Lord, who would we go to? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter always knew just the right thing to say, even if he didn't know the right thing to live. A little while later, as Jesus dies on the cross, when somebody spots Peter and turns and says, Hey, Peter, aren't you like best buddies with Jesus? Peter turns and says, Never heard of the man before today. You know, darkness, death, and pain have a way of blinding us to who we said Jesus was when everything was sunshine and lollipops. When I asked about the real reason people left their faith or their church, and I said, Is it really more about giving up on yourself? I was introducing the possibility of helplessness as the tipping point, the thing that pushes us over the edge that we're always teetering on. Can any of you name a time in your life when there wasn't something absolutely horrendous going on in the world? Something that challenged our faith, our humanity, maybe even our sanity? In our gospel, the Pharisees get upset with Jesus for not following their traditions. I love the list. Things like washing their hands, washing dishes, washing the couch. Man, these guys would love to be alive today. Imagine what they could do with hand sanitizer. Let's talk about why, though, we feel so helpless about the things going on in our world, in our community, and our life. How many traditions are we maintaining that are actually hurting us? How many traditions are we unwilling to give up? And yet we know if they're not hurting us, they are hurting someone. And it doesn't matter who tells us we have to change, that we have to give something up. The first words out of our mouths are usually all the same. Hey, it's my right. Which takes us to the epistle lesson and subordinate clauses. The Bible gets used a lot to put people in their place. Verses get quoted, fingers get pointed, blame gets fixed, people get hurt. But rarely is it has anything to do with the Bible and what it's actually saying. It is far more often about what people either want or think the Bible is saying. Our epistle today normally starts with, wives be subject to your husbands. I intentionally left that verse part out to see how many people noticed. Ephesians 5 is often used alongside Colossians 3 and 1 Peter 2, so women know their place in society, in the church, and in the family. And if we take those verses and let them stand alone without checking the context and a little history, they are very clear. However, do you remember those subjective clauses I mentioned where something is because? All three of these verses that talk about wives being submissive to their husbands are immediately preceded or followed by verses about servants being subjective 
and submissive to their masters. They actually use the word slaves. Centuries before Jesus was born, philosophers realized the household was a microcosm of society. Aristotle said this, the smallest and primary parts of the household are master and servant, husband and wife, father and children. It was called the Roman household code. When Rome conquered the known world, the men in power passed laws to protect this way of life, which of course said that they were the kings of. Biblical passages about wives submitting to their husbands are not giving men total and unquestioned authority over their wives, just as they are not saying that slavery is good or right. Paul noted this system, which by the way came from outside the church, could be used with a few changes, even for the Christian home. He may also have thought that since the Roman government was looking for any excuse to imprison or martyr Christians, that if they followed this Roman rule of the household, that it would give them one less thing to worry about. However, the very important clause attached to this teaching is important because if you miss it, then you miss what Paul is trying to say. Anytime I am given a right, it means someone else has lost their right. Lawyers and judges don't have a job if we all agree on everything. Because we are sinners, judges and lawyers will have job security right up until the time that Jesus returns. And then they are all instantly out of work because we will finally be of one mind and one spirit. Now, if I think my right allows me to yield absolute unquestionable power over you or over anyone, I don't understand what Paul is trying to say. If I think Paul made me, like Yertle the turtle, king over everything I can see, and that includes my wife, my children, and all my workers, and maybe even the world, then I really don't understand what Paul is saying. St. Paul's version of the Roman household code is word for word until he drops this into Ephesians chapter 5. Don't work only while being watched in order to please men, but as servants of Christ, do God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. And masters, treat your slaves the same way, without threatening them, because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with God. The Roman code said, men rule the world, so men go out and rule to your heart's content. Saints Peter and Paul said, men, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself into death for her. Wives, love your husbands like you love Jesus. Children, love your parents. The key word over and over again in the Christian Roman household code is love. In Galatians, Paul gets really radical when he says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, we know that there actually are Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, male or female. But what he's saying is we have something that is greater than all of us, and that's what binds us together. While the Roman household code required nothing of the head of the household, Peter and Paul said they had to love their wives like Jesus loved the church. Paul told parents, do not provoke your children. Peter linked the suffering of servants to the sufferings of Christ, and even pointed to Sarah following Abraham as an example of faith and love. When we read about who we are in Christ, Peter and Paul announce without hesitation that we are unique, unreproducible, and peculiar miracles of God. Instead of this being all about us and our rights, it's all about Jesus. Tell me that doesn't change things. 
Peter says something very telling in chapter 2, verse 16 of his letter. He said, as God's servants, live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a way to conceal evil. Instead, Paul adds, we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ our Lord. Peter and Paul and the rest of the disciples introduce us to a new type of community, a community that transcends human traditions and institutions and which is founded on and exists solely in love. As St. John says, we love because God first loved us. I know in Genesis 3.16, because of her sin, God said to Eve, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. But what husband, especially when he remembers her reaching for that fruit and him not stopping her, or her offering the fruit to him and him eating it as well, wouldn't try to understand God's word out of grace and love and not out of law. They both sinned. They both fell. And now they both must learn to love and serve one another while learning to love and serve God. If we can remember all the way back to last week's epistle lesson, St. Paul's closing words were, Submit to one another out of reverence for your Lord Jesus Christ. If we are to submit to one another, then none of us are in charge. That causes us to ask, then, who is in charge? And that leads us to the cross. There is only one who can truly be in charge, and that is God. There must always be a chain of command. Our sinful nature requires it. But the chain is made out of love. How does this help us with all the darkness, pain, and hurt in the world? Well, I can't give up on the church or on the world. Because when I look at the cross, I see someone who died. And he did more than just say, I'll pray for you. And as my eyes fall from the Savior hanging on the cross, I see you standing right beside me. I realize I'm not alone, not in my suffering and not in my need. I'm also not alone in my ability to do something about the suffering and the pain and the loss because I have you standing beside me. Maybe I can't do everything that needs to be done. Maybe even you and I together can't do everything that needs to be done. But we can do something, and something is often better than nothing. And I guarantee we are always better together. One of the things we tend to forget is prayer might be the first step, but it rarely should be the last step. Prayer is what we do while we're figuring out what to do next. Sometimes prayer really is all we can do. Like when what is happening is on the other side of the world and it's an, on an overwhelming scale of tragedy. Sometimes, well, we pull out our wallet. Sometimes we put our boots on and grab our tool belts. We might open up our homes or spend the night talking on the phone or just sit in a hospital room with someone in silence. There is usually something we can do. And by the way, when I see the church rising up, whether it's LIRS creating welcome places for the Afghan refugees, St. Luke's Reno mobilizing for the Dixie Fire refugees, our comfort dogs hanging out with first responders wherever they are and giving them just a moment, just a moment of peace. Whether it's some of our folks flying C-17s out of Kabul, or churches boxing up food and clothes for the Haitian earthquake victims, or a 93-year-old woman and a 95-year-old man salting the earth with their tears and their prayers, because right now that really is all they can do. You see, that's why I will not give up on my faith, on the church, or on you. It's amazing when our world is on fire how quickly we forget the traditions that we're, that we're holding us back and we begin to love one another the same way that Jesus loved us. Someday we'll do it even when the world isn't on fire, but right now, let's face it, most of us need a little encouragement. We need a little push. 
we need a little bit of help in order to leave some of those traditions, some of those we can't do anything behind and step forward and trust that God will guide and he'll give us everything we need if we're the one that is supposed to go and do what he's called us to go and do. Never hurts to ask a lot of questions about faith and life and love and how it all works. And it never, ever hurts to pray. But prayer can never be the last thing we do. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.